Let's pray. Father, uh, it is our privilege to gather this morning in this place. We thank you for the community that you established here, the friendships, the family, Father, and we pray that everything we do today would give you honor and glory. From the songs that we sing, to the words that we say, to the scriptures we read, to the conversations that we have, the lives that we live, we pray, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, that you would teach us how to be obedient to you, and that you would show us how to live lives of worship. That worship wouldn't simply be a time on Sunday morning where we sing a few songs, but that it would be the intent of our existence in all things to declare who you are and what you've done in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to say this morning, Father, that we love you. We have no hope outside of Christ. We have no future outside of being a part of your family. And we thank you for making a way so that we might be united with Jesus and be called your children. Thank you, Father. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Welcome this morning to Covenant Church. So glad y'all are here. We're going to dismiss our elementary kids to their classes this morning. Later, in a few moments, I'll be diagramming some sentences on the board, possibly doing some uh, geometry proofs. Hey, we're glad you're here today. My name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant, and we are continuing this morning in our series on the book of Acts, and I'm super excited about our text today because it's incredibly appropriate for this day, Palm Sunday. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in church, but I know for many people who grew up around here, it's possible you grew up in a church that did not emphasize uh, the historic Christian calendar. More than likely, you celebrated Easter Sunday and Christmas, especially Christmas, and, and that was maybe it for many of us in the room. And so days uh, like Palm Sunday... Uh, days like Good Friday, maybe those were days that were a bit de-emphasized in the church that you grew up in. I don't know. I know when I grew up, Palm Sunday seemed to be more of a kid's thing than an adult thing. It seemed to be a little bit more childlike in the way that it was approached. Um, And yet, this is an incredibly important day for the community of faith because Palm Sunday is ultimately uh, the initiation of Jesus's royal coronation, his crowning as king. It's the thing that so many people had anticipated and looked forward to with the coming of the Messiah, right? That he would ascend to the throne of Israel, that he would take the seat of David, that he would restore the nation of Israel, that he would drive out invaders and oppressors, and and that he would bring about a restored, literal, physical Israel 
to a place of uh, international prominence. And yet that's not at all what happened, was it? That's not at all what Jesus did. The thing that the most learned, the most educated Hebrew scholars looked forward to with the coming of the Messiah was not what Jesus came about to do. Instead, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday not as a conquering king, sword drawn, riding on a white horse. No, instead, he entered as a humble king, lowly, riding on a colt, which fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And then rather than coming against the Romans, the invading, oppressing, opposing force, rather than coming against the Romans with power and with force, Jesus actually came against the Jews with the force of the truth of who he was and the inbreaking kingdom of God. And so during this week leading up to Jesus' death, he wreaks havoc in the temple. He turns over the tables of money changers who were um, charging exorbitant rates, exchange rates um, for currency so that people could then pay exorbitant rates for sacrificial animals in the temple. In the temple, he turned over their tables, drove people out. Later, he goes on to tell people that he is, in fact, the embodiment the fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 118, declaring himself to be the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the cornerstone. Jesus speaks up and says, that's me, causing great controversy in the process. He then warns people to beware of the scribes, the teachers of the law, the men that the nation looked to as the guys who actually knew the heart of God and knew what was up, Jesus warns everyone else about them and says, don't listen to them. And then if that wasn't enough, he actually tells the people that their sacred temple built by Solomon will be destroyed. Jesus incites the Jewish leaders to kill him. By simply revealing who he is and who they are. And his work is brought to completion not when he ascends to a royal throne, an earthly throne with a golden crown. But instead when he ascends to a cross and on his head is placed a crown of thorns. Jesus is the antithesis of what so many expected in the Messiah. And yet he is the king. And yet he is the fulfillment of all of this prophecy. And yet he is the one that truly comes to bring us life and to bring us hope and to bring us a future. Not in some earthly kingdom, right? Not in some earthly country. Not in some temporary political system but in the kingdom of God itself coming near in and through Jesus. 
And so today, we remember that Jesus and his death and resurrection, it doesn't just give us a future hope, but a current and present hope. And that what Jesus has done can and should change everything about our lives. Everything about our lives. And some of you may say yes and amen to that, but recognize that our nature is no different than the Jews of Jesus' day. What should have been the greatest news ever, that the Messiah had come, and now the kingdom of God was coming near, it was instead received as an existential threat. Life as they knew it would have to change, their power and control would have to be turned over to God, their desires and preferences would have to be submitted to God, their very lives would have to be submitted to God. And at the end of the day, it was far easier to kill Jesus than it was to follow him. It was far easier to snuff him out than it was to believe him. And so today, in a direct correlation to the last week of Jesus, we continue in the story of Stephen that we began last week. And if you would turn with me to uh, Luke's Acts of the Apostles. Book of Acts, and we're going to go to chapter 6. Y'all would, uh, can we stand this morning as we read scripture together? This is Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, And those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Notice what's happening there. Notice this charge that they're bringing against him. Yes, there's false claims in here, but ultimately, here's the point of fear for people. He's saying that things are going to change. Right? He's saying that the customs that we have grown accustomed to are going to change. Our power found in our own righteousness and in the things of this world would not be the case anymore. This place that we hold such, such a high level of importance and, and honor for, this place that we consider to be sacred space, the literal dwelling place of God. Here's somebody saying that this place is going to be destroyed. And, and, and Jesus comes along in his final week in the same way. And as he said some of these things, he comes along, he's driving people out of this temple. And he says, you've made my house a house of, of robbers, a den of thieves. You, you've turned this into what you want it to be. And into something that will just benefit your temporary earthly desires. 
Last week when we started in on the story of Stephen, we saw that Stephen became one of the first deacons or one of the first servants in the church. And uh, he wasn't an apostle like Peter or Paul or John. He was just a regular person who was a part of the Jesus community. And yet, um, every time his name is mentioned in Scripture, there's some kind of a accompanying description of him. So in Acts 6, 5, it says, Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 6, 8, Stephen was full of grace and power. These other deacons are mentioned, but with no such fanfare. And, and this isn't because they love Jesus less. It's because Luke here, the writer of this book, is, is like teeing up to tell the story of Stephen. It says Stephen was doing many signs and wonders among the people. In many ways, Stephen's story mirrors Jesus' own story. And and so as we get into this today, I just want us to briefly be reminded of uh, a key theme here in the book of Acts. If you would turn over real quick, Acts 1-8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but I just want us to be reminded this morning. Here's what Acts 1-8 says. It says, but you, this is Jesus speaking to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this is like the thesis statement of the book of Acts. And it sets the stage for everything that happens throughout the rest of this book. And we said a few weeks ago that sometimes when we hear that word witness, and think about it in our modern context, we maybe think about delivering some kind of like prescripted Jesus spiel to someone else. This... uh, I don't know, sometimes we use it as a verb. Like, I'm going to go witness to somebody. I, now, I don't ever talk like that in normal life, but, but for some reason in the church, we start talking that way. We, I'm, I'm going to go do this. But the Bible doesn't really use the word in that way. It doesn't really use the word witness as a verb. And instead, it's more about being than it is about doing. Does it make sense? It's more about, uh, when he talks about the apostles, it's more about who the apostles are as opposed to particular actions that they're taking. And, and so here's, here's what I mean by this. True witnessing in the sense of the book of Acts is all about something that you have personally seen and experienced. If you're a witness to a crime, then that doesn't mean that you've read about the crime in a book. What that means is you actually saw and experienced something and now can give a first-hand account, right, of what you saw and experienced. So when Jesus says to his apostles, his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he's saying you are actually going to relate to people the experience that you have had. And what we said a few weeks ago is that if you haven't witnessed something, then you have nothing to witness about. Right? If you haven't experienced something, then you don't have anything to talk about. Right? Have you ever like, been watching the news before and they're interviewing somebody that had supposedly seen something and it becomes clear like, that they don't really know what they're talking about. They just want to be on TV. You know? They don't really know what's going on. Unfortunately, I think that's a lot of people out there in the church today. I think there are a lot of people who maybe claim Jesus, but when it comes time to talk about Jesus, things get a little fuzzy. And, and I hope that you will agree with me that surely, surely, 
every believer should be able to relate his or her experience of Jesus, right? Shouldn't that be like a foundational thing for us? That if we have had, if we have had an experience of Jesus, that we would be able to talk about it on some level? And, and maybe even like be a little bit excited about it on some level? And so let me ask you, what, what has Jesus done for you? For you personally, what, what has Jesus done for you? Now, now listen, I know that he died and he rose, right? He, he won the keys of death and hell. He has, um, you know, sealed our adoption into the family of God, that we could be called sons and daughters of God. Listen, that's the Sunday school answer, y'all. I, we all probably know that answer. What about you? How is your life different because of Jesus? What has Jesus done within you that has produced new life in him? And why do we have such a hard time talking about that, right? Why do we have such a hard time relating it? Because for these guys right here, guys like Stephen, there's no difficulty. There is no challenge. What Jesus has done is so significant and so life-altering that you just try to stop me from talking about this. And so to what lengths, to what lengths are you willing to go for Jesus and because of Jesus? You may remember the account of Jesus giving sight to the blind man in in John chapter 9. You may know the story. Uh, There's a man born blind. Uh, Jesus comes along, doesn't really say much. He spits on the ground and he makes mud out of his spit then rubs it on the face of this blind man and tells him to go wash it off his face. And so the man goes and he washes it off of his face and lo and behold, he can see. And so this creates an uproar. People are talking about this. They, they, they know this guy, right? They know he was born blind. They know who his parents are. And, and so everybody's going, what in the world has happened? And so he gets brought before the Jewish leaders who begin interrogating him. What, what, what happened? And he tells them the story. Right? He relates to them his personal experience of Jesus. Now, this man is no theologian. He certainly doesn't even really know who Jesus is. Right? He just knows what has happened in his life. And so they haul him before the leaders. He gives this explanation. They're not satisfied. They call in his parents to like confirm that he was actually born blind. His parents are going, you know, we, we don't know what's happening here. So they bring him back in again. And they go, tell us again what happened. And so he tells them, and he asks them, he says, why, why are you asking so many questions? Do you want to be his disciple too, is what he says to them. And they say, no, we don't want to be his disciples. They say, we're disciples of Moses, right? We're disciples of Moses. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. And what the formerly blind man says is, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. 
All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. And this enrages them, and they throw him out. This is the kind of personal experience that I'm talking about. We may not be able to explain it all. We may not know all the doctrinal foundations or the theological foundations for how all of this works. But what we know is my life was this. And now because of Jesus, it is this. And there are a few things that are as compelling as that firsthand personal account of how things have changed. And this is what I'm talking about, having a life-altering experience with Jesus. And here are the two big fears, y'all, that I have for us. And these come not from just things I've seen. These come from within me. These come from things that I recognize in myself. My first fear is this, (laughs) that most of us can talk about our church and our experience of our church all day long but would struggle to share our direct experience of Jesus, right? We can talk about the ministries that we love, the pastors who've been influential for us, uh, the Sunday school class I went to when I was a kid, or the small group that I'm a part of now. We can talk about that all day long, the friendships I have. But what has Jesus done for you? Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus has used those people in your life. It's not, I'm not saying that's invalid, But why is it that we can more easily talk about that than it is to talk about what Jesus has done for us in our lives? And and then secondly, a fear that I have is that some of us aren't even willing to endure an awkward conversation for the sake of Christ. Right? We're, we're, We're not even willing to speak about him out of fear that it might just get a little weird. So how far are you actually willing to go? How significant has your experience with Jesus been? To what lengths are you willing to go? So here's what's interesting to me. So so for a first century reader of Luke's Acts of the Apostles, as, as they're looking at what he's saying here, this word witness carried far more weight than perhaps it does when we read it. And so there was more to this than simply telling people about Jesus. And and hopefully you will quickly realize why. The Greek word that we translate as the word witness in the English is this word. Martus. Or maybe you recognize it better by its English spelling. Martyr. And so, literally, when Jesus said, you will go and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he says, you will be my martyrs. And so this idea of witnessing, this idea of sharing the story of what Jesus has done, 
over time and through the work of the apostles and the way that they pursued this, it went from potentially meaning just talking about something to meaning being willing to go to the death for it. And certainly that was the example of Jesus' followers. Guys like Peter, Paul, Stephen. It's because of their lives that this word has the connotation that it has today. But all they were doing, y'all, was following Jesus' teaching. As found in Matthew 16. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, Anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, now realize that this means more than just believing in something, right? This means more than just mentally assenting to something. It means sharing in the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus, If you really want to come after me, if you really want to be my martus, my witness, then you must also take up your cross and you must follow in the obedience sense. And in like the apprenticeship sense, you must like take the steps that I take and pattern your life after my life and do what you see me doing. For whoever would save his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So these guys know that teaching intimately. And when Jesus says, you will go and be my witnesses in all of these places, in their mind, the ultimate end to all of this, is going to the death, if that's what it takes, for the cause of Jesus. And yet, my guess would be, for most of us, that's never even been a consideration in the way that it would have been for these guys. That that could actually be an outcome of this life spent following Jesus. April 9th will mark 73 years since Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Nazis in Germany. And if you're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor and theologian who strongly opposed Hitler's regime. Um, And his story is fascinating. There are a lot of great books out there about him. But um, when the true intentions of the Nazis began to take shape in the late 1930s, Bonhoeffer actually fled Germany, pulled a bunch of strings, fled Germany, came to America to teach theology, and he stayed in America for 26 days. He didn't stay in America for a whole month. And he said God was calling him back to Germany. Like, he knew what was going on. And he was free He was safe, and he went right back into the belly of the beast. That was in 1939. By 1945, he was dead. And and what's so amazing about him um, is, and there's there's all kinds of, there was this plot to kill Hitler. I mean, Eric Metaxas wrote a great uh, biography of Bonhoeffer that I encourage you to read. But um, Bonhoeffer's theology 
of following Jesus, of being obedient to Jesus, is best summarized in a book that he wrote called The Cost of Discipleship. And the original title of this book uh, was actually just one word. It was just called Following, or The Act of Following. Um, And it should be, I think, mandatory reading for every believer. Um, It's largely based on the Sermon on the Mount, It's largely just based on the teaching of Jesus and what Jesus said. You know, you've heard it said this, I tell you this. Here's what following me looks like. Um, But here's probably Bonhoeffer's most famous statement from the book. Um, And I think this would have been the sentiment of someone like Stephen. Bonhoeffer says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's, Martin Luther who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Christ Jesus, the death of the old man at his call. And so this is right in line with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you see what's going on here? Yes, Jesus is calling us to life, but this life comes with a death. He's calling us to new life. And in order to step into this new life, there must be a death of the old life. And here's the thing that we miss so often. Jesus isn't calling us to just live our life better. Jesus is not calling us to just live our life better. He isn't calling us to our best life now, right? Jesus isn't calling us to live our life, but just as a more moral person, a life where it's still us, we just cuss less and drink less and lie less and sleep around less. That's not what he's calling us to. Um, Jesus isn't calling us to live our lives, but to just go to church or go to church more or to read our Bible or to read our Bible more. No, Jesus didn't die so that you can just be a better version of yourself. Jesus died so that you can be him. Jesus died so that you could take on his righteousness, right? We sing about being covered by the blood of Jesus. We sing about being hidden in Christ. The goal for us is not for us to be us. The goal for us is to be Jesus. Because if it's us coming before God, then we are do nothing but death and hell. But if it's Jesus covering us, coming before God Almighty... Then he says, well done, 
Because it's not us, it's Jesus. It's his life that we are taking on. And so when Jesus says, I've come to bring you life, and life abundant, it's not just the same old life of death. It's the new life that we find in him. But here's the problem. We don't want to let go of the old life, right? Because we know it, and we're comfortable with it, and it satisfies us on some level, even though it is immensely broken and destructive and heinous. We cling to it. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to be confined to this earthly life of sin and death. He died so that you could be like him. And we miss this all the time. And like this is the inherent problem with most of the self-help junk that's out there today. It doesn't address the root problem, which is you. (laughs) Right? The root problem with you is that you are you. And that I'm me. The root problem with us is that we are not Christ. We are not God. We are broken. And so you work through some book. You work through some program. You're waking up at five in the morning. Working out. Eating right. Saying positive things to yourself. But it's still you. And you're still broken. Listen, Jesus is calling us not to just be better people. Jesus is calling us to be transformed. Not through our own work. Not through our own actions. But through his work. On the cross. We just have to yield our life to his life. We just have to surrender him. To him as the better me. As the better you. We have to take him on. And as Paul and as Bonhoeffer point out, this has to come with a death where you lay you aside and you put on Christ. Bonhoeffer mentioned the disciples who had to leave their families and leave their work. And he mentioned Martin Luther had to leave the monastery where he had spent most of his adult life in order to follow Jesus in the way that he believed Jesus was calling him. In order to follow Jesus, life had to change. How many people around here in North Louisiana have grown up in the church and say they believe the gospel and and have supposedly made some kind of commitment to be obedient to Jesus and nothing about their life has ever changed. Nothing about their life is different. Nothing about their life points to the fact that at some point it stopped being me and it started being Jesus. At some point it stopped being me and then the Holy Spirit came in and indwelt my life and now it it isn't this old guy, it's this new guy who is actually Christ. Why, why is it that that's so hard to see in so many people who claim Christ and who go to church, right, and who are seemingly a part of a community of faith? Why is there so much sin and rebellion within the supposed body of Christ that's gathered? Why is there so much sexual sin and so much uh, divorce and, and so much just brokenness? When, when we're all these people who claim that Jesus has come in and changed us. Could it be that there are many of us who have not actually been transformed by him? We're still clinging to us. 
And just like these Pharisees and Jewish leaders who are going, oh no, he's going to change things, right? The things that we found our identity in, the things we found our comfort in, the things we found our hope in. And now somehow this guy's coming along and saying that all this is going to be destroyed and it's going to be different and we don't want that. What Bonhoeffer was saying is, no, 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 to follow Jesus. Life has to change. Things have to be reoriented around the gospel. Comfort has to be set aside. Preference has to be set aside. Hopes and dreams have to be set aside. For what Paul calls the greater upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That if there's anything that's worth losing your life for, it is Jesus. And if there's anywhere that you will actually find life, it's Jesus. Paul, in both Romans and Galatians, describes it in this way. He says, you have to take off the old clothes of you and put on the new clothes of Jesus. And this doesn't just magically happen, guys. It requires action and intentionality on your part. You have to pursue Jesus. You you have to seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness. You have to long for it. And so Stephen, just like Jesus, is falsely accused. He's hauled before the authorities to give an account for himself. He delivers this lengthy sermon which shows us some important truths. First, Stephen quickly summarizes like the whole history of the nation of Israel, which is a feat in and of itself. He talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, and he goes down the list, and and here's Stephen's intent. He wants to reveal to these guys throughout the history of the story of Israel the fact that over and over again the people have rejected God in favor of their own path. Over and over and over again, they've turned down the creator of heaven and earth, thinking that they know a better way. Even when God had made his power and his plan plain, even when he had done miraculous things like part the Red Sea, the people still doubt him and then, you know, make a golden calf to worship instead. And it's this cycle throughout the history of Israel I love the message translation and how it renders this text in Acts 7. Part of this message of Stephen, uh, verses 51 through 53, the message says this. This is him addressing um, the leaders. And he says, And you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one, meaning Jesus. And, and you've kept up the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. And so there's this, this progression in what Stephen is saying. He goes, here's the history of Israel. Here's this cycle that we've been living in for years and years and years. And here's you. And you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing that your fathers and your fathers' fathers did. 
You rejected the prophets who came saying, thus saith the Lord. Anytime somebody started talking about the Messiah, you stoned them, you murdered them. And and here I am today, standing before you, telling you who the Messiah is. This Jesus, like Peter said, who you killed. Now just like Jesus during his final week, Stephen knew exactly what he was doing here. But notice all he's doing is telling the truth. All he's doing is revealing who Jesus is and who these Jews really are. There's no, it's no different than what Jesus did. And just like Jesus, it enrages the people. So I have no doubt that, that Stephen knew exactly what he was getting into, and yet he presses on willingly. He doesn't back down. He doesn't shy away. He says the hard things, I think knowing fully the potential of what was to come. And so here's the question I have for us today. Where do you get off this train? Like as we're reading the story of Stephen, or the story of Paul, or the story of Peter, any of these guys, like at what point in this process are you out? Right? Is, is, it, is it in the beginning where there's maybe just a little bit of uproar among people? Is it when you get arrested? Is it when you get brought before a high court? At what point do you say Jesus isn't worth it? How far are you actually willing to go with this whole Jesus thing? How influential, how significant, how transformative has it actually been for you? You know, in Scripture... And, and in, in the days of the early church, persecution was like the crucible in which faith was tested. And, and the New Testament emphasizes this concept of endurance over and over and over again as like the true mark of a believer. The true mark of a believer being one who continues to press on in, in spite of the greatest adversity because Jesus is worth it. And because Jesus is is all. Jesus is all there is. And because there's this understanding of that, and there is this transformation, you have these guys who become the embodiment and the definition of this word that originally just meant telling somebody else about something. Jesus says in Matthew 24, in speaking of the end times, he says, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who who endures to the end will be saved. The one who has truly been transformed. The one who truly has faith in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us 
to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Guys, listen, we don't have a clue about persecution. We don't have a clue about persecution. Many of us aren't even willing to be mildly inconvenienced for the faith. In 15 plus years of ministry, I've seen people leave the church altogether, leave the faith altogether over the smallest and most petty issues. I've seen so-called Christians treat other believers horribly because their preferences were being threatened. And no, the current school prayer lawsuit does not qualify as real persecution in the biblical sense. If anything, it is a minor frustration compared to what Jesus has told us is to come. And if you think it's real persecution, then tell that to Stephen who had his head smashed in with rocks. Tell it to Peter who was crucified up and down, uh, upside down. Tell it to the countless martyrs throughout the years who have been burned alive, drowned, pulled apart by horses. Tell it to the brothers and sisters in, in China and in Pakistan and in Iran today who live in hiding because of what they believe. And please remember, That our battle in this world is not for a Christian way of life. That is not what Jesus has sent us to fight for. Because our home is not in this world. Our home is somewhere else. Jesus has not sent us to force unbelievers to at least act like believers. That's nowhere on his radar. That's nowhere on his agenda. It's just moralism and it's not the gospel. It is not the good news of the gospel. Jesus has sent us with the good news of God's kingdom so that people might be transformed by him. So that the old man might die and the new man of Christ might come onto their lives. So our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. It's not against each other. It's especially not against unbelievers. Unbelievers are not the enemy. Unbelievers are not the enemy. When the true enemy convinces us that it's actually other people who are the enemy, he's won. He's won. And so as we saw, Paul says that we should press into suffering for the sake of Jesus because what we find in suffering is of eternal value. What we find in turning over our preferences and our desires, and our comfort, and our hopes and dreams, what we find in giving that over to Jesus is of eternal value. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope is everything. Hope is what drives us. Hope is what sustains us for the next round. And if many of us were being real I fear that we would be quick to get off the train because our hope is actually in the stuff of this world. It's not in Jesus. And for me, this is evidenced by the fact that many of our lives don't in any way revolve around Jesus. You know, you would think if Jesus had transformed everything, if you were a new person because of Christ, that your life would be in his service. I don't mean vocationally. 
But I mean that the stuff of your life, the schedules of your life, the desires of your life, the things of your life, that those things would actually be reorganized around Jesus. But the reality is, is that for many of us, our lives revolve around us. Our lives revolve around our schedule, our careers, school, politics, sports. And those things are all fine and good in their proper place, but there are many of us who are controlled by them. They are our functional gods. They are the idols of our lives. Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. What if we said, I only do what I see Jesus doing? How how would your life be different? If that was the question that you asked every morning, that was the focus, that was the thrust What is Jesus doing and how do I follow him? How do I be obedient? Far more of us are controlled by the pursuit of a particular lifestyle. And so we're working constantly to try to afford the house or the cars or the private school. And there's no margin for the the things of God, the stuff of Jesus. And because our God is stuff or status or lifestyle, our greatest fear is losing those things because we feel like we are losing our very identity. This is the same thing that threatened the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, then it meant that their identity had to change. And so I want to end this morning with a passage of Scripture Um, that I hope will be an encouragement to us. As we go into Holy Week, as we hopefully daily remember the sacrifice of Jesus, as we daily seek to be obedient to him, as we daily seek to turn over more and more and more of who we are to him. You know, this doesn't happen in an instant. You know, there's this, this idea of sanctification, to use a big theological term, this idea that we are progressively becoming more like Jesus. But that is wholly dependent on obedience to Jesus. The process of sanctification doesn't magically happen without us turning over more and more of who we are to him. This idea that we get from guys like John the Baptist that I must decrease so that he might increase, this should be the mantra of our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you would just close your eyes, I want to just read this over you this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we have no hope outside of the work of Christ. We have no future. If there is anything left up to us and our own power or our own goodness, it will ultimately fail. We look to Jesus as the perfect embodiment of what it means to be human. And we recognize this morning, Father, that for us to follow Jesus in the way that you've called us to, to be conformed to his image, to pursue him in obedience, then it requires us to give over control to him. We recognize that this is why Jesus tells us that it's so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when our hope is found in money or stuff or accumulation or some savings account somewhere, when our hope is not in you, the invisible eternal God, it can be impossible or next to impossible for us to let go of the things that we've invested so heavily in. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel so that we might be changed by Christ. Bring us to repentance. Give us a brokenness for our sin and our disobedience. Surround us with a community that loves the gospel and speaks it into our lives and encourages us in Christ. And may we truly find our hope in you. And may that change everything. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Man, one of the greatest things that we could do during this